Okay, one minute past the hour. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining, and thanks for patience with the off week. I don't have uh, any announcements, so we'll get right to Robert's lesson. All right, as usual, let's begin with the scripture reading. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more fruit. You are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you, unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, because apart from me you can accomplish nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch, and dries up. And such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and are burned up. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit, and show that you are my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments, and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, to love one another, just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves, because the slave does not understand what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have revealed to you everything I heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This I command you, to love one another. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you do not belong to the world, but I chose you out of the world. For this reason, the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my word, they will obey yours too. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But they no longer have any excuse for their sin. The one who hates me hates my father too. If I had not performed among them the miraculous deeds that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen the deeds, and they have hated both me and my father. Now this happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. And that was John chapter 15. The blog had a typo, and until recently, like a few minutes ago, it said John chapter 14, but it was John chapter 15. Okay. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, let's get to the main themes here of the text. First, I want to cover some background because I don't think that we can really uh, perhaps understand is not the word, but, 
but get to the depth of the vine analogy or, or parable unless we understand some background information. Number one, a vine or a vineyard was a common image for Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, this is really important. It was Israel. It was the Jews who are the vineyard of God. I provide some examples in the blog. I'm going to read uh, from Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, just so we get kind of the idea of how the Old Testament uses very similar language. It says, I will sing to my love a song to my lover about his vineyard. My love had a vineyard and a fertile hill. He built a hedge around it, removed its stones, and planted a vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and constructed a wine press. He waited for it to produce edible grapes, but it produced sour ones instead. So now, residents of Jerusalem, people of Judah, you decide between me and my vineyard. What more can I do for my vineyard beyond what I have already done? When I waited for it to produce edible grapes, why did it produce sour ones instead? And he goes on. This is right before the Israelites are destroyed as a nation. And in the passage is saying, hey, I, I planted this really good vineyard put up walls, made a tower, the whole thing, and you guys have only produced sour grapes. Now, uh, let me give you another example from the Psalms. You uprooted a vine from Egypt. You drove out nations and transplanted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shadow, the highest cedars by its branches. There again, you see the uprooted vine from Egypt because remember, God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and then, quote-unquote, transplanted them somewhere else. Now, the last little bit or the last verse that I want to read because it is very important context is from Ezekiel. Pay attention to the following. It says, The Lord's message came to me, Son of man, of all the woody branches among the trees of the forest, what happens to the wood of the vine? Can wood be taken from it to make anything useful? Or can anyone make a peg from it to hang things on? No, it is thrown in the fire. Okay. This last verse I read, not because of some big theological point, but a very practical one that's important for what we're reading today. Wood from a vine, right, is not good for anything. It, it's all twisted up and it has knots and it's not... It's just not good to make anything out of. You wouldn't even make a bowl or something out of it. You can't even make a handle for a tool. So the wood from the vine just goes in the fire. It has no other use. And that's something they understood right, very well. We even see it in the text. And like I said, that's not particularly a theological point, although it will become one here in a minute. It's just a practical one we need to understand. Okay. Now, not only is a vine or a vineyard a common image in the Old Testament for Israel. But this imagery was so important for the Jews that it was common in Jesus' day, at least in two ways. Number one, there were some coins made by the Maccabees. and The Maccabees had uh, rebelled um, just a, a few decades before uh, Jesus' day. Um, so there were some coins, some we want to call them Israelite coins, that had the divine on it and most importantly there was a big golden vine at the entrance to the temple okay think about how important this is the fact that there is a golden vine at the entrance to the sanctuary so it's it's kind of the gateway right between the jews and their god um i quote um 
uh, a passage from the historian Tacitus. Okay, Tacitus was a Roman. He wrote about the Jews in the first century, and it is fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this because I just think it's incredible. It says, the, Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped many animals and monstrous images. The Jews conceive of one God only, and that with the mind alone. They regard it as impious, those who make from perishable materials representations of gods in man's image. That supreme and eternal being is to them incapable of representation and without end. Therefore, they set up no statues in their cities, still less in their temples. This flattery is not paid to their kings, nor this honor given to the Caesars. But since their priests used to chant to the accompaniment of pipes and cymbals and to wear garlands of ivy, and because a golden vine was found in their temple, some have thought that they were devotees of Father Liber. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing Liber. I'm not sure of how I should pronounce it. Um, but essentially, the Jews had no images of their God, right? That would be a violation of the Ten Commandments. But they did have a golden vine at the entrance of their temple. Actually, of the sanctuary. Not really the temple, but of the sanctuary. Um, so some of the Romans thought that the Jews worshipped the God of wine because they saw no other images. and They saw that. Um, but of course, they could tell something was off. They, they didn't seem to be worshiping the God of wine and festivities and, you know, the things that go along with those things. Um, okay. A little bit more background. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Stick with me. Vines were widely planted in the ancient world. In fact, in the ancient world, there were only three trees that were widely planted. And that would be the fig, the olive, and the vine. Okay. The, the first two, the fig and the olive, required little or no pruning. Uh, and I say little, the fig required a little bit of work. The olive tree apparently required almost no work. And the vine, on the other hand, requires a lot of work. So this is a tree that, or a vine, I ought to say, that everyone was familiar with at the time. So when Jesus uses this analogy, like everyone knows exactly what he's talking about, right? Um this would be like if I was talking to a group of people in rural Idaho and I used uh, potatoes, or if I was here, um, if I was in, in rural West Texas and I was talking about cotton, everybody here is familiar. Or if I was in rural Iowa and I was talking about corn, okay, it's a very familiar thing. The, the thing is, most of us are not familiar. Now, full disclosure, I actually grew up pretty much in, in vineyards, so this is kind of close to my heart. Uh, my dad, he would manage uh, vineyards. So this is somewhat familiar for me. But at any rate, um, the last thing I want to talk about is actually pruning a vineyard. And you may think, come on, Robert, you've talked enough about vineyards. One last thing, and, and this will come together. Okay, I just went to a horticulture website. I wasn't trying to find one that supported my points or whatever. I just picked one and went with it. And it's just kind of incredible how it fits with what Jesus is saying. So first, why do you need pruning? And I'm going to read directly from the website. It says, the basic idea behind vineyard pruning is to eliminate excess old vineyard plant growth from the previous year so the vines can channel the energy into growing for the new year. Vineyard grapevines produce fruit on wood that's one year old. So the goal of pruning is to maximize the one-year-old wood on each vine. This process also helps train the vines to grow in an ideal way. And it goes on. Okay, so you actually have to prune a vine for it to produce fruit or 
good fruit anyways, uh, plentiful fruit. Otherwise, it will produce very little because the fruit only grows on the new branches, on the branches that are one year old. Um, now, in the old world, how would you prune a vine? You would do it really in three ways depending on the season. One, you might prune it by hand, right? When, very early on in the season when the new sprouts are, are um, not hard, they're very soft, uh, you might just break them off with your hand. Later on in the season, you probably used a knife, okay? Now, if you did not prune something in a timely fashion, it would actually harden, and that hardened growth, you would have to cut off with an ax. As you can imagine, this is just like a beautiful analogy, right? And this would be used by many authors, not just Jesus, this idea that, uh, it, you know, imagine the following analogy. You should prune a young person, you know, early on, because then you can do it softly with the hand or if it's something more serious with the knife and you never want the bad habit to get to the point where you require the ax, right? You can, you can already see how this lends itself to such analogies. And it did. Um, now, pruning by hand um, is common even in today's day. There's many that today swear by it because it requires a lot of skill and and you would do it differently depending on what variety of, of vine you're, you're pruning. Um, so let me read the last little bit, and then I promise we're back to the text. It says the following. Many vineyards around the country. Now, this is today, by the way. This is from a modern-day website. Many vineyards around the country will swear by hand pruning, which has a range of pros and cons. Pruning by hand involves pulling leaves of grapevines to allow more sunlight to reach the grape and removing parts that have been affected by mold or disease. Pruning by hand retains most control over the vines and ensures that the finished wine expresses the grape's qualities in the most authentic way possible. Subtle imperfections can add to a wine's unique character, a sentiment widely embraced in the wine industry. Winemakers prune different varieties by hand because of the different characteristics of the vines. Until artificial intelligence catches up, there is no substitute for a well-trained pruner. Hand pruning is very labor-intensive, and not every vineyard has the capacity to complete the task manually. If insufficient crews are overworked or overwhelmed by the job, too many nodes could be left behind and result in vines that are overcropped. Okay. So just now keep all that in mind, right? Because all of this would have just been background that every Jew at the time would have known. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have probably pruned the vine themselves. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they would know, of course, of the golden vine at the doors of the sanctuary. Okay, so back to the text, the true vine. Jesus begins this chapter with a very shocking assertion, right? He says, I am the true vine. You might think, why is that shocking at all? Because who is the vine? Israel, the Jews, they are the vine. And now Jesus says, I am the true vine. Okay. That, uh, that would have raised some eyebrows, to say the least. Um, and... I, we, we really should ask, what does Jesus mean? Does that mean that Israel then was a, quote, false vine? And no, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. Think about chapter 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven, right? He says, I tell you the solemn truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father is giving you the true bread, the true bread from heaven. He uses the same word, the true bread from heaven. Now, was manna bread? Yes. Was it from heaven? Yes. So manna wasn't quote, fake bread from heaven. 
then what is the point? The point is that manna was a type. It was a foreshadowing of something that would come later. And that thing that would come later was the fulfillment of that type or foreshadowing. And that was Jesus, right? Manna could, could feed you physically, but you would still die. The true bread from heaven brings eternal life, brings a life that will not end, that will not perish. Well, in the same way, it's not that Israel was a false vine. It's, it, it is that Israel is a type, it is a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the vine, which is Jesus, right? Uh, Israel had the law so they could tell you about God's character, but, well, Jesus was God himself, so he, he didn't have to tell you he was just God. You could just have to see him. Um, Israel could, could tell you about the salvation to come. Jesus actually brings that salvation. Israel could teach about the way. Jesus is the way. Right? So Jesus is the fulfillment of divine imagery, of divine type, of divine foreshadowing. That is, again, uh, hugely relevant, Jesus opening with those words, I am the true vine. Um, well, and then two options open up, and it's really just two options. Uh, take away or prune. And what do we mean by this? If a branch is not producing fruit, it is taken away. And what would happen if a branch is taken away that is cut off? Well, it would be burned. Like I read that, that verse at the beginning, um, the wood from the vine is not good for anything, so it is just used as firewood. Um, it is a very powerful image, a very disturbing image, uh, but that certainly is what the text is saying. Or what is the other option? Now, notice that the alternative to being cut off is still kind of painful. Um, the one who remains in Jesus is not escaping unscathed, but he has to go through pruning which uh, certainly cannot feel good. <laughs> there, you know, this is the uh, tearing by hand or cutting with a knife of leaves and branches or you know, small growths and so forth. But he has a purpose. The purpose is that the branch that remains will produce fruit and abundant fruit. Um, now, one point that I want to make, because I think it's relevant to, to say this, is... The text at some point explicitly says the branch that is taken away or thrown out, depending which verse you're reading, um, it is uh, burnt in the fire or something along those lines. I, uh, I'm missing the verse here. But that's reminiscent of other passages like in Revelation, talking about the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, I think it's relevant to say that just like Jesus is not literally a vine and a believer is not literally a branch, and God is not literally pruning. Um, when we speak of the branch being uh, burnt, uh, they, there's no reason to, to think that this is a literal burning, right? All the elements in this parable are uh, not literal. But what is the point of the burning? It is destruction. Okay, so the destruction is certainly intended. I'm not backing away from that one inch. Um, but, you know, would it be done by literal fire? Certainly this parable does not commit us to that, is, is what I'm trying to make clear. Uh, now, something that I find very sad in a, in a 
poetic way, but in a very real way, is this idea that the branch that is taken away dries up, right? So think about this. Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And as you're cut off from the life, whatever life that branch did have, it loses it. It eventually dries up. Um, and this is extremely reminiscent, in my opinion, of the words in Matthew 13, 12. Uh, Jesus says the following, For whoever has will be given more and will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Okay? It is it's very, very sad. It's, it's very sad, this idea that right, whoever is cut off, even what he has will be taken away. He will dry up. Um, I, I try, and I, I will remain kind of apolitical, of course, in this study. But, but I kind of see this in 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 our political world nowadays. That kind of the people who made sense at some point, it seems like as they go crazy, even the little bit of sense they made at some point, they lose. And again, I'm not trying to get into politics. I'm just trying to maybe contextualize this in something that uh, might be more familiar to us. Um, okay. Now, what about the fruit? in this in this parable what is the fruit well there's really in my opinion only two options here uh one option would be that jesus is talking about evangelism essentially the fruit will be the fact that you preach the gospel and more people come to christ and i mean certainly that is an option it, the this idea of fruit is tied to evangelism in john chapter 4 and, and if you're interested i, I cite the verses in the, in the blog but in the context of chapter 15, and not really just 15, but 14, 15, and 16, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. The, these chapters are not concerned with outsiders. They are talking about the community of faith. Jesus saying, love one another, love one another. Now, it eventually a chapter does talk about outsiders persecuting those in the faith. But again, it, it's not really bringing in this evangelism theme. Um, so what is the fruit? The other option is that this fruit is moral in nature. And I'm using the word moral kind of liberally. I, I, I would say it's character related. Uh, it's not just doing good things, but becoming a good person. And I know that sounds very wishy-washy, becoming a good person. What are you talking about? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, the ideal fruit in this moral development and character is common in the other Gospels and also in the letters of Paul. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read here a few verses. This is in chapter 7 of Matthew. It says, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorns or figs from thistles, are they? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, so notice here what is being connected to the fruit doing the will of my Father in heaven, okay? So that's how it's used in Matthew. Now, how does Paul use the same idea? I'm going to read out of Galatians. This is chapter 5. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Again, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Um, that's why I don't think that the word moral fruit quite captures the idea because is love just moral? Is joy moral? Is patience moral? I mean, I certainly think they relate to morality, but it's more than that, right? It is a character improvement. Um, and I think that this is the same kind of fruit that John is talking about here in chapter 15. The last question of this parable is what does it mean to remain, right? It says, remain in me, remain in the vine. Apart from the vine, you can have no fruit. Well, um, I think that we could give two answers, and in a sense, they're one and the same. The answers are, you could say that they are faith, right? Because that is one of the common themes in this gospel is, have faith in me, have faith in me, have faith in me. Um, and we could go back through several verses that say that. But I don't think we can ignore the fact that in chapters 14 and 15, the context is very much obey, right? And I would even say love and obey because John connects these two words. Uh, and, and I say John, it's really Jesus speaking. John is just writing. Jesus uses the words love and obey almost interchangeably. Love and obey, love and obey. And we see it all through chapters 14 and 15. Now, why do I say that faith and then obedience are one and the same answer? Because like we have discussed in the past, it's like the sun and its rays, right? If you have the sun, and I'm not talking the sun like a father and son, I'm talking the sun in the sky, uh, you're going to have light that comes from it. If you have faith, you will have obedience that flows from it. And, and really the Gospel of John allows for no dissecting the two. They are always connected. Um, so when we say, how do we abide in the vine? I, I think one could e equally say have faith in Jesus. Sure, that would be a perfectly fine answer. One, one could say obey Jesus. That would also be an equally acceptable answer as long as we understand that they're connected. Um, now, I rarely, if ever, do this in this Bible study, but but let me kind of add a little pastoral comment here, like give, maybe give some advice. If you are, if you are a, a Christian and you're thinking, well, I'm not really seeing fruit in my life, what is going wrong? And I think that because faith and obedience are so connected, you could focus on one or the other, depending on what you're having issues with, right? Um, you could focus on the obedience and, you know, are you reading the Bible? Are you going to church? Are you giving generously? Uh, are you um, upholding a sexual ethic? Um, are you telling the truth? Are you being diligent at your job, right? That obedience, I think, will, uh, <laughs> to put it kind of in a silly way, increase the abiding. <laughs> or perhaps you are doing all the right things, but you also feel there's no fruit in your life. Well, perhaps work on the faith part of it. Uh, you know, read a book about a great martyr in the faith. Um, enjoy time with other believers. Uh, maybe take an apologetics class or a theology class and, and deepen your understanding of God. Maybe the problem is not the doing, but in a sense, the thinking, the believing. Um, I find that either will give you results 
Um, but on a related note to this, notice that Jesus requires obedience and not results, right? The fruit comes from being connected to the vine. And this is one of the key aspects of the Christian faith. I just have to obey God. I'm not responsible for the results. Um, to, to put it in practical words, let's say I share the gospel with someone. I'm responsible for sharing the gospel. Whether they believe or not, that, that's not up to me. And that doesn't reflect on me. I did what I was supposed to do, and that's that. But that's where my responsibility begins and ends. Um, then um, we get to the second half of chapter 15, which repeatedly talks about loving and obeying, loving and obeying. Now, I've discussed this already. We discussed it in chapter 14, so I don't want to revisit it because, um, you know, I want to focus on other things that we haven't talked about. So let me highlight some things we have not discussed in the past. One, in chapter 14, Jesus promises peace, right? My peace, I leave with you. In chapter 15, Jesus says, if you do these things, right, if you love and obey, what does he promise? Joy, right? He's going to give us joy. Uh, he says, and I quote, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, because we are not um, you know, Aramaic-speaking Jews, we are probably not connecting the dots here. But if you take the idea of peace and joy and put them together, what did you get? You get shalom. Right? Shalom, uh, I'm sure you've heard that word now in a modern setting. But it is a Hebrew word. Um, and shalom means peace and much more. <laughs> what I mean by that is it means peace, harmony, welfare. It is, in a sense, it means heaven. It is that reconciliation and that peace and joy uh, that comes in perfect harmony. And shalom is one of the main themes in the Old Testament, not just from a Jewish standpoint, but also from a Christian standpoint. And so when Jesus says, hey, you know, if, if you follow me, if you obey me, what I give to you is peace and joy. Very much he's saying, I live with you, shalom, this very deep and meaningful peace. Um, of course, the other thing you might consider is the, the people involved in this conversation, they were probably speaking in, in Aramaic, so it would not be surprising if the word Jesus actually used was shalom. And then in Greek, John selected either peace or joy, depending on the context. Yeah. Um, again, Jesus says, love one another, and he commands that. He says, you know, I give you this commandment, love one another. Um, we've talked about this in chapter 14. Um, but I do want to highlight the fact that, again, this is the only commandment that is expressly called a commandment in the Gospel of John. I'm not saying that there are no other commandments, but this is the only one that is expressly called a commandment, so we ought to pay attention. It must be important if that is the case. And then we get to this, this conversation where Jesus says, now I call you friends. And I do want to give you a little bit of historical background here. How are we to understand this idea of now I call you friends? Because does Jesus mean friendship like we mean it today? And I would say to some extent, but not, not really. We, we really have to go into some depth here. Um, to do that, we should begin by understanding the Roman and the Greek conceptions of friendship. What 
you might be surprised by, unless you're really into ancient literature, which you might be, so I'm not making any assumptions here, but the ancients actually valued friendship much more than we do today. It was a topic of conversation. It was something that they wrote about regularly. Um, you know, much more than we do today, at least in, you know, the last few decades. Um, now, the Romans, and I'm going to, let me give this disclaimer. I'm going to use stereotypes here. So when I say that Romans believe this, go ahead and insert a stereotypical in there. So the stereotypical Roman conception of friendship was more transactional. Um, when the Romans spoke of friendship, they were talking of some kind of political alliance. If you were the friend of a ruler, okay, the friend of somebody uh, of high status, not necessarily the Caesar, but a high political official, somebody who was very wealthy, something of that nature, um, then that meant that you were the kind of person who, for example, could speak honestly to that ruler. Whereas a subordinate, for example, a slave, was expected to only flatter the ruler and simply obey all that he said without any sort of honest conversation, right? If a ruler said, you are my friend, that essentially gave you the leeway to speak. Um, friendship in the Roman world was also used in political alliances. If you support me, I support you, we are friends. Now, the Greeks had a conception of friendship that is much closer to something we would identify today. It was a little bit more emotional. Normally, they spoke of friends when they were discussing a group of similarly aged people of the same gender and same social status, right? So like, let's say you have a bunch of 50-year-old males or people in their 50s is what I mean. Okay, that group, would they would be called friends because they're peers. Um, but the Greeks put a huge emphasis in loyalty, right? If you were a friend of somebody, you were loyal to the bitter end. And they actually made a point of that, to the bitter end, especially in times of trouble, you were loyal. Well, so how does Jesus mean friendship? And there are some, you know, the context really gives us the answer to that. Notice that just a few verses down, Jesus again gives an analogy that makes the, that refers to, not makes them, but refers to the apostles as slaves. Jesus is not here uh, talking about an egalitarian relationship. Uh, it is like being the friend of a ruler. The apostles could speak clearly or honestly, earnestly with Jesus. They had that leeway. Also notice that Jesus says, the slave doesn't know the plans of the master, but I don't call you slaves anymore. Again, what are we talking about? It's like the Romans. A ruler is not going to discuss a plan with the slave, but he might actually discuss the plan with a friend. Um, so just because Jesus calls the disciples friends, they're not now at the same level. It's not what in the modern world, we would we would refer to as friendship. However, there certainly is this Greek idea of loyalty, right? Because Jesus is saying, be loyal to me and to one another to the bitter end. They will persecute you, remain loyal. Okay, so I certainly don't want to take away from that, but I do want to push back against a certain, like, more egalitarian view. Um, there's hymns that make me kind of nervous. This is a personal thing. Perhaps I shouldn't share it, but there's hymns to say, you know, I'm a friend of Jesus, which is fine. That is biblical language. 
But I worry that people perhaps misunderstand what that means. Okay. Um, finally, the last thing that I want to discuss from this chapter, and I've got three minutes here to do so, is that the world is going to hate you, right? That's what Jesus says in no unclear terms. The world is going to hate you. Now, if, right, if we have been paying attention to the Gospel of John, this is utterly unsurprising for a number of reasons. Um, John, from the beginning, presents a duality, right? There's light and there's darkness, and these two are at odds with one another. The darkness tries to overcome the light. We run into that language in chapter 1 of John. Um, throughout the Gospel of John, uh, he emphasizes that there is no middle ground. You're either a friend of Jesus, to use the terminology from chapter 15, or you are outside the community and you don't have the same knowledge of God. Um, there's also a chain of command, right? Uh, Jesus follows the Father and the apostles follow Jesus. And this works in, this, in the sense of an emissary. Like Jesus is an emissary of God the Father. So if you hate the emissary, if you hate the messenger, you hate the one who sent him. So if uh, the world has hated Jesus, then they will also hate his emissaries, the apostles, the believers. Okay. So again, it is absolutely predictable that if the world has hated Jesus, it will also hate his disciples. Um, and notice again, this promise of persecution is very unlike what we hear from some pulpits today um, of, hey, if you follow Jesus, life is just going to be super wonderful all the time. Um, but now, don't get me wrong, is there, is there, are there going to be wonderful things? Absolutely. Like, I want that fruit of the Spirit. I want to grow in love and patience and kindness, right? That is absolutely wonderful. And that is a promise. Abide in me and you're going to produce fruit. Um, but are we going to... Are we going to be free of troubles in this world? Absolutely not. And Jesus makes that explicitly clear. But does this leave us in a sort of stalemate where the world is going to hate Christians? But that's that. That's the end of the story. Not quite, right? Because Jesus says, hey, I leave the Spirit with you. And the Spirit will testify, right? The Spirit will bear witness to the truth of, of the gospel, to the truth of what is being said. Um, and so, um, and I will read, this is the very end of the chapter, when the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So there will be a chance for the followers of Jesus to testify about him. And um, so I'm in the world will believe that testimony, right? That's not explicit in the text, but it is uh, implicit, particularly if we take the, the whole Gospel of John um, into consideration. So with that being said, uh, Matt, if you want to open it up for comments or questions. Sure. As always, guys, uh, if you'd like to participate in the discussion, whether you have a question, just a point of commentary, whatever you have to offer, just write question in the chat. I'll be happy to bring you in. Um, and my own thoughts are somewhat disorganized. So I'm trying to organize them, clean them up a little bit before I present them with you. And maybe someone will uh, have some thoughts that clarify for me. But 
one thing, one point of thought that I got a little bit lost in, and I mean lost in my own head, not lost as in you were unclear necessarily, but this idea that faith and obedience are necessarily linked and that you can't really have one without the other. And I was trying to think of examples, counterexamples. Is there something that you have uh, a solid faith in that you wouldn't obey or whatever other word you want to use as a stand-in? Like uh, you wouldn't um, trust or follow or any any of those things. I can't come up with a great example, even though there's something about that that there's something about that on a gut level that prompted me to want to push back, but I can't think of a good pushback example. Do you have more thoughts on the linkage between those terms? Yeah, maybe. So I think you're right in the sense that sometimes we use faith differently in a way that would not, that obedience would not follow. Like, uh, particularly if, if I have faith in a thing, right? Like I have faith that that chair will hold me. Well, I don't obey the chair, but if yeah. I have, what we mean in this context is if I have faith in Jesus, meaning that I, I believe that he is who he says he is, and therefore I believe in the things that he says, then I'll follow them. Like my example would be, let's say that I am going to buy a car and you're like, Robert, you got to buy a WRX. It is the greatest car. Uh, it's the most fuel efficient, the fastest, Formerly. the most good looking. Then yeah. they ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's ignore the most yeah. modern iteration of it. Yeah. Okay. And um, and let's say that that's ex that car is exactly within the budget that I have, and like it meets all the criteria that I said I had. Right. So let's not get sidetracked on that. Well, but then I go to the dealership and I don't buy that car. I buy a, a Toyota, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, well. That means I didn't really believe you, right? Like I didn't believe, if, if I honestly, if I earnestly believed everything that you said, that that was the perfect car for me, like I would have bought that car. So the fact that I didn't follow through with your advice, that I didn't obey is, it just shows that I didn't believe you. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have faith in your advice. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I mean by that, that if I earnestly believed what you told me, then I would follow through with it. And if I don't, just means that I didn't believe it to begin with. Yeah, this, it's kind of like, uh, in that sense, faith is, you, you saw some of this in the this or that sort of binary black or white language that's common in John's gospel as you were referencing, but it's sort of, faith in this way is sort of like the term pregnant, I suppose. It, either, you either are or you are not. There is not really like a, a halfway faithful person. If if you're yeah. if you're halfway faithful, it implies you're also halfway doubtful, which means you're not fully faithful by definition. It, let me just say, just so I'm not misinterpreted, am I saying that Christians then always obey perfectly? Certainly not. Certainly yeah. not. Um, but if if my life does not reflect any faith in Jesus, like let's say that I call myself a Christian, but um, I am. Uh, I'm going to give cliche examples. I'm, I'm sleeping around, so I'm not following the biblical, you know, sexual ethics. I'm not going to church. I don't read my Bible. I speak carelessly. I am rude to people. I am un, I dis, you know, I am disrespectful to my parents. I am unloving to my wife. When Jesus has told me to do all the opposite things, right? Jesus told me, you know, 
love your wife sacrificially. Uh, do not commit adultery. Uh, you know, do not giving up with meeting other believers and so forth. Um, then, I mean, it's on, the honest response is, I don't believe Jesus. I just don't. Uh, and, and so that's what I mean by that. Is Yeah. Uh, Eric and Cindy, I'll get you in just a moment. I did get a written question here from Eric. Uh, I might have to clean this up for uh, Bible study purposes, Eric. So bear with me. This one's a little super chatty. But <laughs> in this day and age, there are many Judas or Judas is. A lot of Judas is walking around. How does one cope with this reality uh, is his question. Oh, my goodness. I would um, go back to the parable of the the wheat and the ah uh, in the weeds i cannot remember the word that is used for the weeds but um there is the the there's this oh we didn't yeah wheat and chaff um thank you and so right the jesus says the kingdom of god is like a field in which the owner goes and he plants good seed and then when he's asleep the enemy goes and plants bad seed for for weeds right and then the two are growing together and the servants go to the master and say did you not plant good seed what is going on here and uh, the master says i did the enemy must have done this so the servants say would you like for me would you like for us sorry to go pull the weeds and the master says no don't do that because if you pull the weeds you may pull some of the wheat as well um but in the last day uh, or, I mean, sorry, when they're fully grown, we will harvest them and then we will separate the good from the bad. Um, and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I thought you were finished up. So if you have more to add, go for it. Yeah, I, I was just going to say the tares. That's the word I was looking for. Somebody ah. said it, the tares, the wheat and the tares. Thank you so much. Um, I'm not as biblically illiterate as I sound, I promise. I just forget some things on the spot. Um, and so... I think you have to be careful um, when you are trying to just, you know, pull up the tares because you might end up harming some true believer. Now, is that to say that there is no room for discipline? No, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus actually talks about, quote unquote, church discipline. He doesn't use that term. But essentially, if a brother is sinning, uh, you should first approach him one on one. If he does not change his ways, then you should approach him with another two or three people. And if there's no change, then the congregation should take action. This rarely happens today. Churches would rather die a thousand deaths than discipline a member. <laughs> hmm. uh, and sadly, um, that has had consequences. And I think that very much is where the question is coming from. All right. Thanks, Robert. And thanks, Eric, as well. Uh, Eric and Cindy, if you guys want to chime in, go ahead and unmute yourselves. Hi. Hello. Um, can you hear us? Yep, loud and clear. Okay, so is it okay if I comment a little bit more on the the car scenario, like scenario that he gave? Yeah, sure. Robert, are you okay with that? Absolutely. So I think another part of that is um, it's not just faith, but a lot of it comes into like you can believe it, but a lot of people just don't want to. I don't want to buy the car that I was, you know, that fits everything I need and. What? You know, I've been looking forward to a Camaro my whole life, so I don't care that it doesn't fit anything I need, right? It's what I want. And I think that's a big part of the 
the like faith and not responding in faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I, I think that is why even Christians, like I was saying, Christians are not perfect. They don't obey perfectly because right. I might believe Jesus about, uh, again, let's use a cliche example, but a powerful one. Let's say I believe Jesus about sexual ethics, but I really want to do something else. Um, well, shoot. Yeah, I don't want to wait till I'm married, right? That, that's right. And <laughs> don't even go adultery, right? I don't want to wait. That's exactly right. And maybe I will then do the thing that I should not do. So you're exactly right. There is those desires to go, but I really want the convertible, or I really wanted the Jeep, or I really wanted the whatever. When the WRX yeah, well, was like, the we, right and choice. Like, and like in, in our faith, we we're in a faith where like we we keep dietary laws, like we don't eat pork and shellfish and stuff, and you know, there's, there's other stuff, but that's like the easiest cliche thing to, to mention. And, you know, we've had people are like, we don't do Christmas, <laughs> even though we bought a tree this year, but, um, <laughs> but, um, we've had people that say things like, well, I know. And I really feel like I I'm convicted that I'm not, you know, that we're shouldn't be doing Christmas the way it's traditionally done or whatever, but I like the lights. Right. And it's like, but you you're saying you're convicted. Right. But you, but you like the lights and people who, you know, dietary laws. And it's like, I don't want to, I, I like shrimp. I don't want to give it up, even though I might read it and feel convicted, bacon. but bacon. yeah, bacon, you know, um, but it's, and I'm not saying people should do it, but if you're convicted and then you're like, but I don't like what I'm going to give up by being obedient to that conviction. So I think, I think that's a big part. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. And I think that's that kit that push. Oh, I lost her. Did you lose? Yeah. Okay. I, I did there just for the last second, but thank you for your comment. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Cindy. If you guys uh, can still hear us. All right. If you have a thought to complete, go ahead and chime in. Uh, but for now, I think we lost your connection. Uh, let's see. I don't see any more requests for comment or to speak. But if anybody else wants to jump in, just go ahead and type a question in the chat. I'd be happy to bring you in. Um, the other thoughts that were swirling around my head that are not at all back, organized. Maddie. Oh, there. Wait, now I I heard a little. Yeah, I came back. Cindy, are you there? Oh, I. I think she's uh, now. I I don't see her anymore, so she must have dipped out. But perhaps we'll get to complete that thought later. We, we but, just oh. came back, but sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead and okay. finish your thought if you... I don't remember exactly where you uh, left off, but... Well, the big thing I meant is this. The last thing I wanted to say was that um, even as active Christians, Matt, we all feel that, like that that nudge to resist that you kind of described. Mm -hmm. Like, ooh, something about me just kind of like, I don't I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, right? We all feel it. Every single time gives a, God gives us a conviction about something in front of us, we always have that moment of decision of, you know, what choice we're going to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, I don't know what it is about that particular concept that really captured my, my thoughts for a minute there, but, uh, thank you for adding some the Bible more. Bible calls uh, it the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really that's, that's what the Bible calls it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for the thoughts. Appreciate okay. it. Uh, Chris would like to, join chris go ahead and unmute yourself hi thanks uh so <clears throat> pardon my voice um 
I just wanted to add on a little bit to what Cindy was just saying. You know, I think if you think about all the, the different religions and the criticisms that they get from people outside those religions, <clears throat> the, the the reason really people push against Christianity is they're so antagonistic uh, about it. It's, it's not because it's like a religion of violence or something like that. It, it's it's because they don't like what it's saying. Um, you know, they don't they don't like um, and it's the same thing, you know, when Jesus in some of these chapters that we've just gone through, you look at um, Jesus healed Lazarus or I'm sorry, raised Lazarus from the dead. And you look at the reaction. One of the reactions was to kill Lazarus again. Right. I mean, you think how <clears throat> because it, it's ups, it was upsetting their apple cart, their their way they had it, the way they wanted. And I, I really think that's the reason if you listen to all the I, th I think that's the reason you hear uh, criticisms and, and pushback of intolerance and what have you. Of Christianity, where you don't really hear that of, of like uh, some other religions that are in some ways a lot more strict, if, if uh, that's, that's a bad way to word it. But I guess what I'm saying is the, re the, the sole reason people don't like it, I think, is because. It, it it does demand some changes, and it is the genuine article. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think he's exactly right, and I think that you know if the Bible was saying, well, what what faith in Jesus demands is that you sleep around as you see fit, and that you you know uh, use your money for your own purposes as you see fit and blah, 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 you know, yeah, nobody would have a problem with it. Everybody would be like, yeah, I have faith in Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so absolutely. And one more comment, if right, we have a, we have a minute, something I, I'd like to add to this conversation is honestly, I think where where some of our preaching has gone wrong in maybe the last 20 or 30 years is that we are so scared as Christians to talk about obedience and, and essentially use it, the language that Jesus uses in chapters 14 and 15. I mean, it is such strong language. Like, uh, let me, I'm going to find it here, you know. Um, but like, for example, chapter or ch verse 10, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love. You would never hear a preacher say that today because they don't want to turn Christianity into a work works work-based religion which is not which is not and i agree with them but at the same time we can't ignore this connection between faith and obedience um and and sadly i think we have in the last few decades and it has had very bad results um so that's one one comment i don't want to get all preachy but it i think is true and the other thing we forget is that we will produce fruit, right? We will grow in character. We will grow in love and patience and so forth. And sometimes you will hear preachers say, yeah, we're Christians. We believe Jesus, but all we want to do is sin. All we want to do is sin. And that's really not correct either. Uh, if all you want to do is sin, if the law of God does not hold some appeal to you, um, man, there's something wrong there spiritually, right? Because just like Cindy was saying, Sometimes we have sinful desires. I'm, and sometimes we 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 fall to them. I'm not denying that. Like maybe, I, I keep going back to the same example. Forgive me. It's just an easy one. Maybe I really want to sleep with that girl, and I and I do, and I do. Right? Okay. We have sinful desires. 
But at the same time, as a Christian, there is a love for the law of God, especially because the more you obey, the more you see how wonderful it is. Like we don't obey out of fear because our salvation doesn't depend on it. But I want to produce that fruit, right? Like when I grow in love and I grow in patience and I grow in kindness, it is so incredibly rewarding that it's like, I want to. I want to obey and I feel bad when I don't. Not because God is going to like burn me in hell, but because I am not abiding as well as I should and I'm not growing like I should. Uh, so I, I just think that's important to say. Yeah, thanks for the the thoughts on that because as I get... Uh, deeper into this study and deeper into my own thoughts on the topic. I think that's one of the areas of additional clarity that I've found is I think my hesitation with just religious concepts and faith prior is the idea of, of obedience as though you're some kind of um, like you've been captured or you are, you've been kidnapped or something like that. Like someone is holding you captive and telling you what to do. And what you're describing is, no, no, these are instructions. These are uh, a guide for how to live that I seek, that I make the decision to seek out and to find for myself and to follow out of my own free will. And that's a, a key distinction that I'm not sure I understood or recognized as much in my younger years. So I appreciate the clarity on that. I, uh, Denby, um, and thank you, uh, Chris, by the way. Um, Denby, I, I see your request to speak as well. So if you would like to go right ahead. Yeah, it's um, don't, don't have a lot to say. Just a, a few things. Well, first is just that um, you know, we know from the get go that there's you know that we can we don't always measure up. Like Saint Paul says, you know the phrase, "The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak." Have you heard I, that before? I haven't, but Robert is nodding his head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he Paul says, "I do the thing I would not do." I think the thing of the I think the thing I would not think I do, you know say the thing I would not say. So, you know, it's a problem for everyone. And the other comment I want to make is that I think that Christianity is both uh, easier and more difficult than uh, other religions. Um, but what I mean is that um, you know we don't have um, a just just a set of rules to follow. The way that um, a lot of a lot of other religions do, you know, just you do these things, and if you do them, you know, like you know, point points based system, you know, you do the the right number of things, and then you're you're in the right position, you know. Um, but Christianity doesn't have like just a, a series of points that you have to hit in order to be right with God. You know, it's sort of it's more uh, complicated than that. You know, it's not like so like a lot of religions that you it's just you you eat the right diet, you pray the right number of times, you say the right prayers, you do this list of things. But Christianity doesn't require that type of of faith. You know, you just go through the motions, basically, you just do the things you're supposed to do. Um, so <clears throat> I think um, that's why it's sometimes hard to get a grip on. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? No, I, I agree. 
I agree. Um, you know, I know that we're right at the top of the hour, so I'll, I'll say this. I, I would say, um, or this is how I picture it, right? Imagine, <laughs> I go back to the verse in Exodus where, where God says, choose life. Choose life. It, it is your choice, but choose life. So imagine that you choose life. It's like you want to live the best life possible. And let's imagine that you know the wisest person in all the earth. And so you go to that person and you're like, I choose life. I want to live life and life abundant. I want to live a good life, a meaningful life. Tell me how to do it. And this very wise person tells you exactly what you need to do. You would obey that wise person, not because you have to, but because you want to. It's like, yes, that's, that's what I'm after. Thank you so much for your advice. And that is the Christian idea of obedience. It's like God is good and God is wise. And so it's like, yes, Lord, tell me how to live because I want to live a good life. Um, that is what we're talking about, if that helps at all. Thanks, Denby. Uh, did have one more request from Garrick. I have uh, a couple minutes, uh, Robert, if you're not in a hurry. Absolutely. Sure. Garrick, uh, go right ahead. Hey guys, uh, sorry about that. Uh, this is actually the first time I actually get to catch it live, so uh, this is actually kind of nice. Um, <clears throat> to go back to the discussion you were having as far as uh, preaching obedience, uh, do you think this stems from the idea that of um, the parable, judge not yet, lest ye be judged, and um, we don't want to take on the disciplinary action? I, I interpret that to mean not that you can't say somebody's doing something wrong or not, but it's you can't you can't necessarily pass judgment on to what the punishment should be. That's not your role. And I think people take it too far to say, no, you can't decide what is if somebody's doing something wrong or not. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think that uh, you've really hit on something here. It's uh, I think that that is the most misinterpreted verse in the Bible. Uh, and I, I'm not just throwing that out of thin air. There's other people who would say that as well. Um, that verse certainly does not mean um, what people think it means that you can't make, that you cannot make up your mind on whether somebody's acting correctly or incorrectly. In fact, the Bible demands that we make those judgments. In fact, even if people were just to read one more sentence from that verse, they, God calls us to judge in that sense, to discern. And certainly that the church is called to maintain a certain discipline. And that discipline is not to burn someone at the stake. No, but if somebody really is living an inconsistent life, they may have to talk to that person. In a worst case scenario, they may have to kick him out of the community. That That is absolutely biblical. I would love, I know that we're right at the top of the hour, so I won't say much more, but I think you're absolutely correct. That verse is misinterpreted. And uh, the church should have a form of discipline, which I know that is, that's like a dirty word nowadays, uh, but it's biblical nonetheless. And certainly as believers, we not only have the right, but the duty to say, hey, I think that the person is doing something wrong and I'm not going to go along with it or, or what have you. We could discuss that more some other day. Thanks, Garrick. Okay. I uh, appreciate everybody joining this evening. Thanks for the uh, the good discussion. Did you have any closing thoughts before we're finished, Robert? No, I don't think so. Thank you, everyone, for the discussion. Of course. Well, thanks for the lesson, and thanks for joining, everybody. We will be back 
next week, December 10th at the usual time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Remember, um, if you are looking to find anything related to the study, whether you want to listen to the study back later or read Robert's notes or get in touch with either of us, you can do that on the Bible study page of the website, mattchristensenmedia.com. There's a Bible study link right there on the homepage. Have a great week, and we'll see you next weekend.